Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to another week of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And I'm joined by different co-hosts because Shelly is just gallivanting. Is that a word? <laughs> yes, that's there the word. Is. Yes, Shelly is on a flight to Europe to go to Rackfest. Actually, it's not Europe anymore. It's England. They're not part of the European Union. But I have my second favorite guest co-host, Kim Wilkinson. How's it going, Kim? I'm doing well. Way to maintain that first favorite. <laughs> we don't want to be burning bridges while she's away. <laughs> no, no. She's going to be listening to this. And she'll be like, what did you just say, Serge? No, I <laughs> really appreciate you coming on because it's in the middle of summer. There is a lot going on. Everyone's in vacation. Are you going on vacation or you just came back from vacation? No, I definitely did not come back from vacation. I am going away next week. I'm from BC. We're going to Summerland, which I've never been to. And last year when we went, it was so smoky. It's been really mm. kind of rainy there. So I think we'll be smoke free, which will be nice. So what is that Summerland? You know what? I'll report back. I actually don't know. <laughs> well, it's right in the middle of wine country. So I'm sure you'll have a couple of glasses of wine, right? Yeah. I mean, when in Rome. Yes. So after this... I'm getting ready and I'm leaving first thing in the morning, going to New Brunswick. My family's been gone for a little while. They're in Florida. So I'll be meeting them this weekend in Moncton, New Brunswick. And I can tell you, I would be a really shitty bachelor because I haven't done much since they've been gone. Yeah. I bet you're just eating like garbage. A hundred percent. Because my wife, she's like, I noticed like restaurants or fast food pretty much every day. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. It's not been the healthiest eating and it's probably not going to be as I go into New Brunswick because literally everything they cook there is fried. Trying to get rid of that belly fat. (laughs) You'll be eating more regularly though. I find that with kids, you have to feed them. So that prompts you to feed yourself. But when they're gone, you're like, oh shoot, I haven't eaten and it is 2 p.m. You are so right because it's highly regimented. They always eat at a certain time. And like even last night, I realized it's eight o'clock and I forgot to eat. So I usually eat like at five o'clock. So I'm like, better make something, which making something meant ordering delivery or takeout. (laughs) Hey, we've got a lot of fun topics today. There was one that's not really a topic. I just want to get your impression what you would do because... I know if I got paid 330 times what I usually get paid, I don't know if I would give it back. So I'll give you the background. This man in Chile was accidentally paid 330 times his salary. He resigns, then just vanishes. He normally receives a paycheck of around 500,000 Chilean pesos, which is around 550 US dollars. They screwed up his paycheck and sent him a check for 183,000 US. Saw the overpayment, called HR, then he realized, fuck this, I resign and vanish. 
Have you ever heard of such a thing? I'm sure it happens a lot, right? Never. I don't know what the legal rules are in Chile about that. To Canada, there's some recourse. And we have had it where we've overpaid candidates and there's a chain that needs to happen to get that money back. But I don't know what the policy is there. But I guess 330 times his weekly pay. So this guy's got to resurface at some point. He's got a year maybe. And I'm, and then what? <laughs> maybe not because the average pay in Chile a month is around $1,000. So that's $12,000. So if you put $183,000, he could probably survive for a really long time. Someone's probably looking for him in Chile because the company did file a charge for misappropriation of funds and they're hoping to recover some of the money, but there's been no arrest. They haven't been able to find him. They haven't been able to track him. So I think in the right circumstances, if someone paid me 330 times my salary, and I didn't have kids and I could find a way to escape, maybe I would try. I don't know. Yeah, the deserted island life. It could be for you. (laughs) I can't wait for him to resurface. When he does, we'll bring that up on the recruitment flex. Let's follow him. We'll have a Chilean tracker. (laughs) Chilean tracker. Yeah, let's find him. A lot going on in recruitment as always. But one of the things that we don't talk a lot about on the podcast, there was a recent research from Aptitude that looks at the state of interviewing right now. And I can tell you, It's pretty precarious. Let me give you some of the key points. One in three companies are not confident in their interview process. Not surprising, actually. I think it would be higher because I've never been confident in my interview process in any company that I've worked with. Half of employers have lost quality due to poor interview process. And less than 50% of organizations measure the return on investment of their interview process. I would say that's even bullshit. That's maybe 10 to 20% are actually measuring a couple other key findings. One in four candidates drop off at the interview stage. Organizations are not communicating with them. It's taking way too long or they're not hearing at all. People don't know where they stand. They keep looking for other jobs. And right now, video interviewing is definitely not the preferred format for interviews. As we know, that's been the number one strategy for companies during the pandemic. And even now it's something that's just carried over, especially with remote roles. But what they're telling us, "Eh, I'm not crazy about video interviewing. And I was actually a little bit disappointed to hear that because I do not want to do face-to-face interviews probably ever again. So what was your initial thought looking at this data? What was your take here? I interview every candidate I put forward and I'm definitely getting that feedback. And this does not surprise me at all. You're right. The speed is a huge thing. Lack of communication huge. I just chatted with a candidate this morning who was talking about a job that they weren't engaged in, has no idea where the state of affairs are. A company actually was going to fly them somewhere. And then this candidate booked time off work and then last minute changed that and moved it to another time. So there's just not really care in the fact that candidates are actually working somewhere else right now. And so there needs to be a level of respect for their time. And I did a post a while ago on LinkedIn about investment in recruitment teams and how there's none. And I think that all leads into the problems that we're having here. They're not given the tools, they're not given the resources, and they're just left drowning often. And so I don't think it's a fact of we don't care about candidates, although that is the message being received. It's a matter of that these people are drowning and cannot keep on top of their work because they have not been given the proper tools. 
When you talk about measuring the ROIs on interview process, I totally agree that companies are doing that, but what would that even look like? The involvement that you would need to have with your recruitment teams and with the candidates that were and were not successful is so extensive. I would be shocked to hear about companies putting in that kind of work. I I would be shocked too as well. And if you look at what you can measure easily, right? What's your average time that a candidate goes through the interview process is one, because that will give you an idea of where your gaps. If your average time is four to five weeks, as an example, there you go. That's a massive gap that you need to fix right away. We had talked about this in a podcast a little bit as far as companies that do it really well and Meta, so Facebook, I love their process, which is you book off half a day, you come in and you're doing interviews back to back. So you're doing three interviews, but they're all in four hours. And at the end, you have an idea if you're going to get hired or not compared to you do one interview two weeks after you do the second interview, then maybe the week after that is just way too long. If you've gone through these types of process, it's really nerve wracking, right? It's like when you start dating, going back to our dating stories from our last podcast you were on, you know, when you're starting to date, do they like me? And why is he like calling me back or she calling me back? It feels like that as you're going through the interview process, if it takes a long time, you don't know where you stand. Totally. Yeah. He's just not that into you. And if we followed those principles that book puts into dating to the interview process, we'd see an astounding number of candidates drop out of the interview process. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. One of the things in this research that I thought was interesting, it did show that companies with structured interviewed process have way better results overall. They have improved candidate experience, quality of hire, And there is less bias that is happening because we all know our hiring managers with their pet questions, or they think they're great interviewers. Generally, they're pretty horrible. I think the key thing out of this research was that you should be structuring your interviews. You should have defined goals as far as the ideal candidate and how the interview questions get to the point that you are making the right decisions. What's your overall thoughts on structured interviews? Yeah, I like it for a couple different ways. And I do the same thing. So when I'm interviewing for a role, I build out my questions based on that role. And I ask the same questions to each of the candidates, because how am I to evaluate two people that I had a completely different conversation with, where I did not offer one candidate the option to share something that could have been a real pro for the other candidate. So I agree, it should be sat down and discussed beforehand. Here's our question portfolio. And it shouldn't be something generic. It needs to be specific to this role. What are we looking for? What questions are we asking? There should not be that surprise. If you were a tree, what tree would you be? We do not want that showing up in interviews. Everyone involved should know what to expect so that Everyone can come together afterwards and go, okay, how did you feel about this answer, that answer, what have you? Yeah, really good points. One of the things that stood out to here was 82% of candidates surveyed stated they wanted more feedback on the interview process. Not surprising. My experience is candidates don't really want feedback after the interview, even though they say it, but there's nothing worse than you're doing an interview then you just don't hear anything. 
ever. Totally. Yeah. And it's a fine balance because I totally agree with you. People are like, I want feedback, but are you ready for feedback? And so I think that's part of it too, is asking candidates if they want feedback. I always ask candidates, whether it's resume feedback, interview feedback, I don't think it's right for us to assume everyone's in a different place and how they absorb that, but be open to offering it when it's asked for and being honest. Companies are afraid a little bit. There's maybe some fear around liabilities or slander or potential interpretation of why candidates weren't selected. We're in a huge I don't even know what the right word would be, but put people on blast culture right now. And so that leaves clients or companies a little leery to give really raw feedback because a fear a candidate's going to take that all the way to the bank and to the news or whatnot. I think there's a couple different pieces in play as to why feedback's not given effectively. Say you were head of a talent acquisition department and given freedom on how you structure your whole interview process. Where would you start? What would it look like to you? Um, I mean, I think I would make sure that I understood company culture, company opportunity. What are we looking for? What attitudes work well here? I'm a big fan for hiring a fit over skill and making sure that we're building out questions and policy around identifying those skills. We want to look for room for candidates to grow. I think that's a real gap in where interviewing goes is that we're always looking at what you've done, but candidates don't want to move to do the same thing again. We want to know what else can you do? Where can you grow? And so making sure that there's opportunities to identify that in the interview process Certainly ensuring that there's a timeline being met. I think that is critical and key that we have good follow-up with any candidate that we've engaged with. And this may be unpopular opinion that candidates think they deserve a response for every application. I disagree. It's just simply not physically possible to do. But if we've engaged a candidate, there needs to be a follow-up of some degree. What does that look like? And then, yeah, how quickly are we getting to offer and buttoning those things up? I think those are the things that you'd want to focus on first. All really good points. How many interviews do you think a company should do before they hire someone? No more than two. No more than two. Yeah. I'm on the same page. And depending on what field you're in as well, I think you can save yourself a little bit of time if you have a portfolio of your work. All these things give more information about you to the hiring managers and the recruitment team. You might be able to save some steps by being very prepared as a candidate on your end. but It will always be a challenge until hiring managers specifically and executives understand that the days of six, seven interviews and having everyone meet the candidate before you put an offer out until they realize we're not going to see a lot of change in the interview process. So we have the ability as talent acquisition people and, and leaders to, to keep pushing this interviewing is so critical in my opinion. Yeah. And you have your two interviews. Sometimes you have that coffee meet and greet with the team, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it should be optional as a part of the candidate's decision-making. I think there's value in them coming down, seeing the office space, seeing who you're working with as part of their decision. But that should be after you've already made your decision. It shouldn't be part of this decision. And again, more unpopular opinions here. I don't think your staff should be involved in terms of actually making the decision of who you're hiring for your team. You as a leader should have a strategic plan of different diverse 
personalities and skill sets that you're adding to the team, not someone that everyone just wants to go for beers with. And the fact that we're putting power into employees' hands to really make leadership decisions concisely, like, sure, I'm open to hearing any crazy concerns or red flags, but I've worked with companies where literally they draw the line and I'm going, guys, what is going on over here? Oh, amen. It's such a good point, Kim, because I think what's happening is a lot of hiring leaders are afraid to make that decision because if it goes sideways, they would be fully accountable. The hiring decisions are made sometimes on what Susie and accounting might think of this particular person. But as the leader, you know what you need to be able to drive in that type of personality and giving that decision to other people, you're losing control. So really good point. Yeah. Let's dive into the next recruitment insight. I was reading a research that was done on LinkedIn about the highest turnover rate. This was focused on full-time roles. We're excluding a lot of roles that you might think have high turnover, but I wanted to get a sense of more office corporate type work. Where is the retention? Where is the turnover happening? It's a big part of the discussion right now with the great resonation, turnover rates have been up in most industries. Looking at the type of positions, and I was a little bit shocked to see it because HR was the highest, almost 15% over the last 12 months. The average turnover rate was about 11%. So human resource was at 15%. Research was at 13%, product managers, 13%, marketing, 13%, and consulting was around 11, 12%. Those were the roles with the highest turnover. Let me go through the ones with the lowest. Administration was 7.8%, accounting, 9%, business development, 9%, and finance, 10%. So is this shocking to you? Surprise? What's your thoughts here, Kim? No, I'm not surprised at all. HR is likely one of the least best used roles in an organization. There are some companies that are doing a really great job with HR, but the majority, I would say, are still living in the 1950s with how they utilize HR. And the problem is that the individuals have evolved they want to contribute in a different way. And oftentimes the companies are not providing that type of an environment. I've never worked with a skill set that has had to advocate and fight for themselves so hard to do the bare basics of their job. And frankly, that must be exhausting. And I absolutely can see why people are moving on to new opportunities. Yeah, I'm not surprised because there's different types of HR people. There's what we would think of maybe 20, 30 years ago, but now we have a lot more strategic leaders that think about the whole business. This person comes in and tries to enact the changes that are needed to be done. And they get yeah. blocked all over the place. But don't you think too, the last two years have probably been the toughest on HR more than any other role, right? Think about the amount of workload in the last year to two years that have been put on recruitment and the pressure that they've been dealing with being like, why can't you find me people? 
We've seen a massive turnover. You used to be three recruiters. You're now one recruiter handling a hundred recs. I've never seen the level of requisitions that recruiters are dealing with right now compared to in the past. Anything above 10, in my opinion, is not manageable. What's your take on recruiters and how they're feeling and they have opportunities. They're in hot demand. I place recruiters and it is tough to find them. And they're becoming smarter about what they're looking for and what has been a red flag. I agree, like HR recruitment are really the unsung war heroes of the pandemic. It's been crazy. And I find that these skill sets are really more aligned with personal ethics and values than other positions in an organization. I know for me, when I'm working with clients, I won't work with clients that I feel gross about, for lack of a better word. And so if you're working for a company recruiting talent that you don't believe in and that you don't feel good about, that you witness firsthand, treats their employees like crap, you're not going to want to work there. And, and candidates know that there's choice out there right now. So why would they not go and work for a company that they're excited to talk about? And you must know that obviously being in recruitment, there's nothing better than being supercharged and jazzed about a role you're working on in the company that you're representing. And if you don't have that, your life can suck. <laughs> Kim, such a good point because there is nothing worse than knowing that the company culture is shit, the environment is shit, and you're pitching it to candidates of how great a place it is to work because you're trying to recruit them and maybe you're stretching it in some ways. No one wants to lie. That's not what I'm saying, but I think sometimes you can exaggerate how great the culture and all of these things are and you feel guilty about it. And I've had that situation where I bring in people in the company and I'm like, ah, they're so fucking good. It's too bad that they're going to go wasted here. And we see that in corporate recruitment more and more. So yes, I think a lot of people have decided maybe this is not a culture. But the other thing is, do you think HR people are just getting out of HR as well? Do you think that's happening? I don't see a lot of that. I see a lot more people consulting and going out on their own. The pandemic was so uncertain and roles like HR, although again, I think the unsung heroes of it were also impacted because you're a cost and there's already struggle with buy-in and now we've got financial constraints. There was a lot more layoffs where those people and, and people in recruitment as well are sort of like, I really don't want to give my control and power to an organization to take my job away again. And I've seen and work with quite a few HR consulting firms that are newer or pandemic born who are thriving and seeing a ton of success. All good points. Yeah. Let's talk about something that is really interesting. I was reading an article on the Harvard Business Review that talks about founders And are founders less horrible or do they have a more difficult time finding a job than non-founders? And this is really focused on people in the tech industry. So generally, a lot of these people have a tech background or a software development background, and they've started their own company. It didn't work out, which I think the numbers are like 90%. Eventually, they're going to get back in the world of work. What this article talked about, I'll give you a little bit what they did. They sent out 2,400 job applications for a software engineer position across the US. They used three different profiles, a technical co-founder, generally a software developer type, a failed startup, a technical co-founder of a successful startup, 
and a non-founder who was a technical employee at a tech startup. All three profiles had very similar skills and experience, but they found that former founders were 43% less likely to receive a callback. I'm a little bit confused because every job ad that I read says we are looking for innovative, hardworking people. And I can't think of a subset of people that are as innovative and as hardworking as people that have started their own business, especially in the tech industry. What was your take here? I think what we didn't see was the invisible text that states, as long as you stay in the lines. We are so freaked out to bring in people that are out of a box. We say we're innovative. We say we want entrepreneurship. We don't really want those things. And that stems from a ton of different issues. It's some old antiquated thoughts around tenure. I know there's always concern that these candidates are just buying time until their next venture, which to that I say, who cares? If they're going to add value to your company for the next 12 to 18 months and then move on, you've just gotten 12 to 18 months of absolutely amazing ideas and productivity. Take it. No one is being born and dying at companies anymore. Move on. It goes back to bad leadership. We have put people in leadership that their style is around telling people what to do versus creating and building something. And so when that's your mentality as a leader, you will be very threatened by someone who has operated outside the box or who themselves has been a leader because they're looking for submissive. And when you're looking for that as a leader, I think that is an example of what a shit job you're doing because you want people to learn from. I'm actually working with a client right now that I really love their leadership thoughts around that is that they said straight out, we want to learn from our employees. You tell me what we can be doing better and help build this process. I'm here to lead and guide. I'm not doing this day to day. If more leaders had that mentality, we wouldn't see this type of disparity in and callbacks for people with that entrepreneurial mindset and or proven ability. We talked about last week because there was some influencer on TikTok talking about how companies actually don't hire the best candidate. They hire the candidate with less risk. And that made a lot of sense to me when I started thinking about interview questions. A lot of the interview questions like, why did you only stay at this company for a year is based on minimizing risk to make sure that this employee is not going to leave quickly. And to your point, our expectation of an employee right now is on average, they stay two and a half years. So if you can bring in someone that can solve problems, hiring these types of people that think in a different way that don't fit that box are going to deliver a lot more value, even if they only stay a year or maybe they stay two years, maybe they love it and they go up the ranks, they are going to solve problems because I can only imagine starting a tech business, the type of problems, the type of things that you come across, you can't get that in a corporate environment. You never will. I think we're really missing the boat because we're going to see a lot more of these people come on the market as the economy goes into potentially a recession. A lot of people will be on the employment line that have run their own business. There's just less investment right now that we've seen maybe a year ago. And I think it's going to keep slowing down. So keep an eye out for those. 
Yeah. And don't you think it goes full circle back to our first topic of interviewing is that if you had a tight interview process, you wouldn't maybe worry about replacing people so much. There's that fear of going through that process. Of course, if it takes you two flipping months to fill a role, that's going to seem really daunting where if you invest in your recruitment teams, you've got a tight turnaround, you're getting someone hired in two weeks, suddenly worrying and obsessing around attrition wouldn't be what was eating your mind. And you could focus more about just bringing in, like you said, problem solvers and critical people for the problems of today. Do you think this is a disconnect between the executives and HR where the executives are coming out and saying, Hey, we want really innovative type people, but HR or the hiring managers fall into their normal routine of how can we make sure that this person doesn't come with a lot of risks? Do you think it's a disconnect or the executives just don't know what they're talking about? I mean, it could be. Are we questioning and challenging the norms of things and whether that falls on HR or if the executive team wants to sit down and like, what are we asking candidates and challenge every single one of those questions and start building something that makes sense for what you're trying to do as an organization? Very interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more founders looking for jobs. Hopefully, hopefully not Serge and Kim. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's rare that I have an expert like you when it comes to building personal brand. And we talk about it every once in a while when you're on the podcast, but wanted to give some really good, tangible, tactical tips to the recruiters here, corporate and staffing that are looking to build their personal brand. And a question that I get even with my sales teams, like, what should I post? I don't know what to post. What would be your advice? What type of content should they be posting on social media, LinkedIn primarily, but what's your take there? Yeah, so I have a strategy here, so I'll share it. And it all starts with the 80-20 rule. 80% of what you're posting needs to be providing value. 20% is you asking for something. And don't be deluded. You posting a job is not you adding value. That is you asking for something. So that should be about 20% of what you're doing. And the other 80% really can be a variety of things. Observations that you've had, some interesting candidate mishaps, some places where you see candidates are maybe being misled or making mistakes or what you'd like to see from candidates, maybe some areas of the hiring process that are potentially broken. It doesn't need to stay in a box so far. It should be related to hiring, recruitment, the market, what's going on, but it should be insightful things that you've observed. And again, should not be you asking for stuff. I see recruiters that literally it's all they post is we're hiring anyone interested. It's like, guys, read the room. Everyone is hiring. Say something else. Start a conversation. Say the shit no one wants to say. I say stuff on there sometimes that I'm like, God, I am going to get lit right up for this. But I'm like, no, it's a real topic and it needs to be said. And so let's just say it. Be you, obviously be respectful and you know, we don't want to be rude, but it's all about building that community and that familiarity with you as a professional. And that is what boosts your brand. And that is what helps in your hiring. What's your take on controversial topics? There's a fine line, but let's use Roe v. Wade as an example. Yeah, I tend to veer on the side of 
staying away from topics like that on LinkedIn. I think those are important conversations. People should be talking about it. It's a huge thing down in the States. It's crazy. I have a million and a half opinions on it, but I don't think that when you're building a personal brand that is connected to your work life, I don't think it's maybe wise to be posting because it opens a can of worms for keyboard warriors. It is very uncommon to come out of a dialogue like that without your whole post becoming a hot mess. And I just don't love providing a platform for those people to speak, whether you agree, disagree, whatever, but just in the way that people start to speak around topics like this is so unprofessional, so disrespectful. And I would just be leery of opening that up on something that is connected to your professional brand. Yeah, it's. I think I'm on the same page when it comes to that. There's other mediums that you can share your opinions on. But I also found some topics that are kind of on that line create a lot of interest. A couple of weeks ago or a month ago, I posted, okay, is Airbnb's approach versus Tesla's approach when it comes to working from home and coming back in the office? And just raising the question, which one do you think is going to win out in the long run? And you warned me about that. I've never really had a post go viral in that sense on a semi-controversial topic. It got hijacked by a lot of people just saying, it's about time to go back to work. It got controversial in the comments, even though it wasn't the goal. I'm just curious. I don't know what's going to win. It started a really interesting conversation, even though there was a few trolls or keyboard warriors that didn't bring any value to the conversation. I think I had 200 people from Tesla view the post and I had 10 likes from Tesla employees, which was very insightful. Former Tesla employees. (laughs) Probably, yeah, exactly. Probably former. (laughs) There's a line, right? Working from home is... Not that controversial, even though we have very strong viewpoints of where we're on the ledger and sit. No, Um, absolutely. When you just look at, is this a really charged topic around politics, policy, things like that, that are, yeah, work from home, not work from home is absolutely something people should be talking about. You just want to be mindful and people will post things with an intent for one result and just the way that social media works right now, where you post that on your Instagram, your opinions, and you want to share with a curated group of your close and personal friends, that dialogue looks a lot different when you open it up to a global platform. I don't think that everyone's always prepared for the absolute onslaught of just craziness that comes with that. What type of posts that you've had the most success? You've post almost on a daily basis. Some go viral, like 1.4 million. Some don't, I'm assuming. 3.4 search. (laughs) There you go. 3.4 million. But I'm sure you have posts that get like 400 views. But what type of posts have you had the most success with? I would say the ones where I'm just speaking out, calling things out a little bit. I'm definitely very candidate forward and focused. People like that too. The one that went crazy was me talking about candidates that quit a job without another job and why we look at the candidate in that situation instead of saying, 
how crappy is that company that people are leaving and they don't even have a job to go to? They just got to get the hell out of there. And so that fired up a lot of conversation. Another really big one I'd had previous to that was me basically saying, if I write you, write me back. It's something that maybe everyone doesn't want to hear where I'm saying, keep that bridge and door open. Maybe today you don't want to talk about an opportunity. Let me know that. I don't need you to tell me that, yes, you're interested, but you always want to keep those professional connections open and going. You never know when you're going to need them. My last one I did last week has gotten a fair amount of traction. That one was posting a job when you have an internal candidate marked and wasting mm. candidates time. It's ones that just, it's either going to hit a nerve or it resonates with people. But again, it's been the ones where I've spoken that honest truth, maybe that unpopular opinion that really tends to get the most dialogue going. And I think it's important dialogue to have. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the things that everyone's trying to do is go viral or get massive amount of views. And I don't think that needs to be a story, right? If you create consistent content that brings value for recruiters, if you can give insights on resumes that could be extremely helpful, well, you might only get 500 views, but that person's going to keep following you. Yeah. But You're- what did we get in life where 500 people seeing something you said became no good? You know what I, I mean? Know. I think people need to check it. I saw something one time and it was more gained for like influencers and more like Instagram type people because people get down on the visibility of, of what's happening. Is it worth it? But the post said, imagine that amount of people in your office watching you do what you do. And it suddenly starts to feel like a really big number. You know what I mean? 500 people in this room with me right now watching me, I would be sweating and potentially vomiting (laughs) because I would be so nervous. So if you can impact and change even one person with what you're sharing, that is value. And that's how change is made. When you go into a thought going, I'm going to change the world, you're never going to change the world. You need to change one person or influence one person. And then that person influences it. That's how real change happens and sustainable change. So don't focus on the analytics, pay attention to them. Cause I think there's stuff we can learn from it, but don't make that your reason or not reason for sharing what you know. There you go. Tony Robbins here. That's great advice. (laughs) No, you nailed it. Don't worry about how many likes followers. If you have a good message, it's going to bring value to someone and eventually it will pay off. Just be consistent with what you're doing and you will get the traction. Kim, this was fun. It's the first time that I've done a Friday podcast without Shelly. So thank you for being my partner this week. So you're leaving next week for Summerland? Yeah, the land of summer. I'll let you know all the magic that is there. And yeah, safe travels to you at 6am. I hope you're regretting that decision. What time are you getting up? Three? Oh, 3.30. And... You need to go to bed now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I am excited. So for the audience knows, Next week, there won't be a Friday show, but we have a very special guest for our Tuesday interview that we're going to move to Friday. We have Dr. John Sullivan. If you read ERE.net, he's been on there forever and now has his own site where he has extremely valuable content. So we will be on vacation, both myself and Shelly. So one week without us, but Kim... Always a pleasure. I love having you on. So have a great day. I love being here. So thanks for thinking of me. Thank you for listening. 
What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On Press Box Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on Press Box Access.